For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Well, we're in this middle section of Romans on spiritual growth, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, the greatest treatise on spiritual growth in the entire Bible. Um, Romans 1 through 3 talk about sin. It's a message of condemnation. The whole world is under the power of sin. We're all guilty. We're all in need of God's forgiveness. Romans 3 through 5 is about salvation. It's about justification. It's about how God makes us right in His sight. And then Romans 5 through 8 is about spiritual growth or what, what sometimes is called sanctification in Scripture. And we've been learning that part of what it's been getting at, it has not taken the approach that you'd expect, the approach that you see in religion where we just try hard to be a better person. But it goes right to the core of our identity. And one of the points that Paul is making is you do what you do because you are who you are. And there was a problem with who we were. We've been seeing this term in Adam in Romans 5 and 6, that our very first ancestor, just by way of review, broke, broke away from God. And we were unplugged from our source of power. And just like a light bulb, when it's unplugged from its source of power, it will go out pretty quickly. That's what happened to the human race. And so Adam spawned a whole race of people that also were alienated from God. In Adam, we are guilty. We are dying. We are all what the Bible calls sinners. We're inclined to turn away from God, just like he did. And um, a lot of approaches to spiritual growth just sort of cover up. They get people, they, they sort of, they go with the willpower approach that we saw from Ben Franklin a couple of weeks ago. Unfortunately, you see this in Christian literature a lot as well. And you'll, you'll be reading perfectly good Christian books, and then they'll start to talk about spiritual growth, and they'll switch over to the, the effort-based approach. Let me give you an example of this from Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, which is an awesome book. Maybe the best book out there on getting reconciled in conflicted relationships. I highly recommend the book, except for this one section where he's like, here's how spiritual growth works. Listen to his description. He says, because Paul knew we can only put on Christ-like character through dedicated practice, he compared that work to the rigorous athletic training needed to win in the Greek Olympic contest. So all of a sudden we're into athletics and we're into really training hard to be good. He says, this teaches us that desirable character qualities are developed in the same way as any other skill. By God's grace, we practice the desired action over and over until we've overcome our weaknesses, mastered the proper techniques, and made that behavior both natural and automatic. So it's like learning a musical instrument. It's like learning a sport, he says. You've got to just shoot a thousand times, and that's how you're going to perfect your shot. It's the same way with doing right. You just have to do the right thing over and over, and it'll just become like habit, and you'll do it naturally. Practice should be both planned and spontaneous. This principle is illustrated by the Glenn Cunningham story. You guys familiar with Glenn Cunningham? Well, you will be. <laughs> Glenn's legs were severely burned when he was a young boy. Although he was told he would never walk again, he developed a rigorous training program of stretching and walking and running exercises that he followed faithfully in spite of constant and severe pain. Go, Glenn, go. In addition, as his legs healed, he began to look for opportunities to run even more. If a letter needed to be mailed, Glenn ran to the post office. If his mother needed flour, he ran to the grocery store. If his father needed nails, Glenn ran to the hardware store. But you always carry the nails point down when you're running home. 
tasks that other boys grumbled at were viewed by Glenn as opportunities to rebuild his body. His hard work paid off. In 1934, Glenn set a new world record for running a mile. Whoa. Through a combination of planned training and spontaneous exercise, Glenn overcame seemingly impossible handicaps and achieved the goal he had set his heart on. That's how spiritual growth is. If you work hard enough, you too can be like Glenn Cunningham. With God's help, you can use the same approach to change your character and develop the fruit of the Spirit. Well, that's, that's not what we see here in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. He's not like, just do right over and over and over again, and eventually it'll start to feel natural. Now, this is not like brushing your teeth or riding a bike. This is far more complicated than some of these tasks, or even running. No, in Christ, what you need is you need, first of all, a change of identity, and then you need to see yourself in that new identity. You need to unleash the power of your new identity. You're transferred from in Adam to in Christ, and in Christ we've seen we're innocent. We have eternal life. We have power for true change. And the source of that power we saw the last two weeks is that we are now alive to God. We're no longer spiritually dead, but we are alive to God, and we are dead to sin. And so the power that sin once had over us, we're dead to that. Not only that, he says we're dead to the law. And that's what he's going to elaborate on some here tonight in Romans chapter 7. We're going to understand that, that it, what we're going to see partly, you know, last week we saw he said you're no longer under law, but you're under grace, so sin will no longer be your master. What he's going to show us in Romans 7 is when we live, when we try to grow spiritually under the law, Sin will be our master, and the result will be slavery and defeat. And that's what Paul's going to narrate. And I think the most um, personally revealing passage that is in the entire New Testament, the Apostle Paul sharing about his own struggle with sin under the law. The point tonight is because you've died to the law, you no longer have to be destroyed by it. And this is pretty confusing. What does it mean that we've died to the law, that we're no longer under law? Does that mean we should do the opposite of what the law says? No. It's not that, you know, the law says thou shalt not kill, so we should kill, and that's going to be good. No, this, it's, it's, a different, it's a different approach here. So let's start reading in Romans 7. Paul says, do you not know, brothers and sisters, from speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? Yeah, the law can't, does not apply to dead people. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. So here we have our married woman, right? And here we have her husband, and they're married, right? As long as they're alive, it's till death do us part. Now, in this analogy, she's married to the law. And the, the problem is, it's, it's, it's not a good relationship, okay? You know, he's always right, he's never wrong, he's very critical, he's always telling her, you're messing up here, you're messing up there. And, um, you know, she's just sort of a klutz, and she's always doing the wrong thing, and they're just all wrong for each other, okay? But there's a way out. <laughs> if her husband has a little accident, <laughs> if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. And so, lo and behold, one day, boom. Now, ladies, this is not, like, don't get any ideas here, okay? <laughs> the point is, 
if now she has sexual relations with another man while her husband's still alive, she's called an adulteress. But because her status just changed, <laughs> suddenly she's on the market. She's free to marry another. Her husband dies, she's released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So because her husband died, thank God, now she's single, now she's free to marry someone else and everything's totally legit here, okay? <laughs> so in this analogy, he says, my brothers and sisters, you died to the law through the body of Christ. So, you know, she's married to the law, we're, we were married to the law, and this, it's, a, it's an imperfect metaphor. And part of the imperfect part is the law can't die. The law is eternal. So, instead of the law dying, we die. That's what happened when we came to Christ. We died to sin, we died to the law, and so this once permanent, seemingly permanent, fatal relationship that we were in, where everything was just all wrong, now we're set free. So you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Oh, <laughs> bobblehead Jesus. In order that we might bear fruit to God. So he's mixing metaphors here, you can see. But um, <laughs> he's switching to the metaphor of fruit bearing, and this is an analogy often used in spiritual growth. And, and I love the fruit bearing analogy because, you know, you don't walk into a garden and see the trees just grunting out the grapes or apples or whatever. They're not like, oh, must produce. You know, simply by nature of who they are, as long as they're, as long as they're in the ground, they're, they're bearing fruit. And that's, that's what Jesus said. He says, I'm like the vine. You need to stay hooked into me, and you're going to bear fruit. And that's, that's what spiritual growth is like. It's not like the Glenn Cunningham story, where we just need to try and discipline ourselves as hard as we can and overcome our all obstacles. No, there's a relationship, and it's within that relationship that we bear fruit for God. When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us. Isn't that an interesting phrase? There were sinful passions aroused by the law. So a commandment that's from God that tells us not to do the wrong thing, perfectly good commandment, is somehow stimulating the desire to sin in us. Oh yeah, it's not the first time he said this, it's not the last time he's gonna say it. He says, as a result, we bore fruit for death. As, as, our, as we focus in on the thou shalt not and don't do this and do that, there's a part of us that it chafes against that and it makes us want to do the opposite. Or if we do comply, it makes us proud, which is possibly even worse. The sin of pride. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law. Now, what is he talking about? We've been released from the law. Some people are like, well, it means we're not under law for salvation anymore. But we already saw in Romans 4, nobody's ever been saved by the law. He can't be talking about that. Some are like, well, you know, in the Old Testament, God had all these sacrifices, and he also set up like a government of Israel, and, and that's no longer the case anymore. Well, yeah, we're released from those too, but in the very next verse, he brings up, do not covet which is about as moral of the laws you can get. He's, he's focusing on an internal attitude of wanting something I don't have that's not mine. And he says, that's sin. At least it can be sin. Are you saying God's law is bad? No, Paul's not saying that either. He says, the law is great. The problem is me. The law is showing me a problem with myself. 
And that is what we're gonna see here in Romans chapter seven, that the difference between under law and under grace, just to get a, a little bit of orientation here for us, under law, the basic idea is I'm doing something for God. Whereas under grace, I'm trusting God to do something for me. That's a fundamental difference in how I approach spiritual growth. But it's also a difference in how I approach salvation. But as we saw in Romans chapter one, the thesis of this book, salvation is by faith alone, and it's, from, it's by faith from first to last. It starts and, it, and continues by faith. It's not like we start under grace and then we switch over to works. Paul rebukes the Galatians for that. He says, you're so foolish. Having begun by the Spirit, are you not gonna be perfected by the flesh, by your own works? No, as William Newell says, to preach devotion first and blessing second is to reverse God's order and preach law, not grace. The law made man's blessing depend on devotion. Grace confers undeserved, unconditional blessing. Our devotion may follow, but does not always do so in proper measure. Under law, my self-worth is derived from my poor performance, and it may fluctuate. Whereas under grace, my self-worth is defined by God and will never change. That's the rock-solid foundation of spiritual growth. And under law, I'm focused on doing my duty, doing what is right according to the rules. Whereas under grace, I'm focused on my position in Christ that we saw last week, the things that will never change about me now that I'm a Christian. The indicatives in scripture, my focus is more on those. I'm aware of the imperatives, but I'm focused on the indicatives, these truths, the things that give us motivation that tell us what's true no matter what as far as our actions, and drawing near to God and loving other people. The law of love is the New Testament law. And so I'm released from the law. I'm no longer under law. So we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code, the old way of the letter. So there's two ways to serve God. There's under law and under grace. There's the new way of the spirit and the oldness of the letter. And what we're gonna see in Romans 7 is what it looks like under the old way of the written code. And in fact, he mentions the Holy Spirit here. That's the only time in Romans 7 the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Holy Spirit is mentioned at least 18 times in Romans chapter eight. That's the difference between Romans seven and eight is the, is the Holy Spirit features prominently in spiritual growth. And um, he is the power source that we have for this new way of, of growth. On the other hand, I, me, it's mentioned several dozen times in Romans chapter seven. It's all about me and I and what I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to stop doing. And you're gonna see the dead end that that will lead us to. And so Paul's gonna tell us some important functions of the law in our lives. And he says, first of all, what shall we say? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I wouldn't have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So this is one of the great things the law does for us that it defines sin. You know, we've all got our own definitions of sin what's right and what's wrong, and that might change from moment to moment, from person to person. But God says, no, I'm the one that determines what's right and wrong. And the reason all of you kind of have a general sense that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, he says, that's for me. And I'm the one that ultimately sets that. And you know, we're like, well, as long as I don't murder somebody, I'm a pretty good person. And Jesus said, no, actually, if you have an angry thought in your heart, that's, you're guilty of murder. Well, as long as I don't commit adultery, as long as I don't cheat on my wife or significant other, that's, then I'm a pretty good person. And Jesus says, if you lust after someone in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. And you're guilty enough to go to hell. And so we've got sort of, we try to lower the bar, Jesus raises the bar. 
And God, his law is defining sin. And I remember um, when I became a Christian, there were just things where I'd been doing these things for years now, and all of a sudden I'm a Christian, and I start reading God's word, and his spirit starts to convict me, and I'm like, wait a minute, this is wrong. This thing I'm doing is wrong, and I'd never had that thought before. You know, the law is kind of like a microscope. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make us better, but it sure points out the problems. You know, you think about this cool, clear glass of tap water. Get out your microscope, though, and what do you find? This. That's what's in your tap water. Or you look at, uh, you know, you look at your face from a distance. This guy's face, he's a pretty good-looking guy. Looks like he's got pretty good skin. You get out the microscope, though, and what do you find? That. <laughs> Disgusting. And this is... This was there the whole time. You just couldn't see it without the microscope. And the law is like that. You know, it looks fine. You're like, yeah, that's pretty good. And then the law shines its microscopic spotlight on it. And you're like, ooh. You know, we got, we got problems we didn't even know we had in places we didn't even know that we had. Thanks to the microscope of the law. Watchman Nee writes, God knows who I am. He knows that from head to foot I'm full of sin. He knows I'm weakness incarnate, that I can do nothing. The trouble is that I don't know it. I admit that, yes, all men are sinners, and therefore I must be a sinner. But I imagine I'm not such a hopeless sinner as some. God must bring us all to the place where we see that we're utterly weak and helpless. While we say so, we don't wholly believe it. God has to do something to convince us of that fact. Had it not been for the law, we should never have known how weak we are, and Paul had reached that point. So we can say reverently, God never gave us the law to keep. He gave us the law to break. He knew well we could not keep it. We're so bad, he asks no favor and makes no demands. Never has any man succeeded in making himself acceptable to God by means of the law. Yes, God's law is shining into our lives. It really isn't very much help for solving those problems, but it sure can tell us there's a problem there. He gives us another one in verse 8. The law doesn't just define sin and point it out to us. Look what he says in Romans 8. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. So we've got sin somehow being produced by the commandment. The law stimulates sin. The law doesn't just define sin. It stimulates sin. It makes us want to sin more. Paul tells us a couple things about the commandment. Here he says the commandment, it says, seize the opportunity and produce coveting. So commandment gives opportunities to sin that sin will be sure to capitalize upon. You know, like a... Um, like a team that makes a mistake and the other team capitalizes on it to score a goal. Sin will be that way with the law. It will take every opportunity to capitalize upon the law. Um, how does this work? Well, my wife used to work at this pretty large um, corporation in Columbus and, um, you know, just cubicles as far as the eye could see. And um, she said that, um, she was telling me how there was a point where some of the management started to realize they were having a problem in their bathrooms. People would use the bathroom, and instead of using their hand to flush the toilet, they would kick flush the toilet. 
guess they're afraid of getting germs on their hands. Well, they started to notice this is really taking a toll on our toilet handles. <laughs> we need to stop people from doing this. And so management came up with this solution where in every stall in every bathroom, they hung a sign that says, do not kick flush the toilets. Thou shalt not. <laughs> and you know, my wife is not a germaphobe. She's never had an inclination to kick flush a toilet in her life. But she was telling me, you know, the first time I went into that stall and I saw that law inscribed upon the tile, I had the deepest desire to kick flush a toilet. <laughs> And it wasn't just her. I mean, we're talking HR, accounting, IT, this white-collar rebellion against the man spread <laughs> throughout the entire building. There was a rash of kick-flushing unlike any that they'd ever seen before. Toilet handle under toilet handle, trampled underfoot. And this white-collar rebellion against the man. Until finally, they were like, this is getting out of control. They replaced all the handles with those infrared sensor thingies, you know, that always flush like three times while you're trying to use the bathroom. <laughs> the worst thing they did there was put a, hang a law on every single stall, because you know what, what, you're thinking, I mean, nobody tells me what to do. Especially in the privacy of my own little stall, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> So, sin, the law can stimulate sin. Do not walk on the grass kind of makes you want to walk on that lady's grass. You know, it's like you don't realize how much you love food until you try to go on a diet. You know how that feeling? You're like, I've never been hungrier in my life. And Wendy's 4 for 4 sounds so good right now. I don't care what time it is. Are they open? The commandment produces every kind of coveting. He says, apart from the law, sin was dead. What? Sin was dead apart from the law, but then, and he says, once I was alive apart from the law. This is why Paul's definitely a Christian here. Some people say, well, he's talking about his experience as a non-Christian. He wouldn't say that about a non-Christian. I was alive apart from the law. It's sort of that, that, that new believer that comes to Christ and they're just so full of enthusiasm and it's like they're high on God's grace and then all of a sudden they think, I need to start really trying to be good. And death comes into their spiritual lives. When the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. It can cause sin to spring to life, the commandment he says here, which spells, it doesn't literally kill us, but death is used kind of metaphorically here as defeat. You know, the word it, sin sprang to life, the word is literally to resurrect. It's used of Jesus' resurrection elsewhere in Romans. It's like sin was dead and all of a sudden it's alive and it's like this zombie coming for you. And the, what brought it back to life? Was it some reanimation, you know, shot or whatever? No, it's... The commandment, that was the reanimation gel that was shot into this corpse that brought it back to life to terrorize you. The commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. And I found the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, he says that again, 
deceived me. We see the deceitfulness of sin. And through the commandment, put me to death. And so he sees the commandment gives opportunity, sin will seize. It stimulates sin. It causes sin to spring to life. It deceives us. It's like the ring in Lord of the Rings, you know, that just brings treachery to whoever's carrying it around. The law stimulates sin. And so Paul's describing himself kind of like this oval, and he's describing himself, you know, we talked about the flesh, the sinful nature, some translations call it. So even as a Christian, even though I'm dead to sin, there's still a part of me there's still an enemy within the camp that hates God, is opposed to God, will rebel against God until the day that we die. Hope you realize and have just accepted that. And, you know, that's going to be there. Don't feel like I'm a failure as a Christian because I sense that it's there. And what he's saying is the law is kind of like a well-balanced diet for the sinful nature, for the flesh. And if we feed on the law, if we focus on the law, the sin nature is going to get stronger and stronger and more powerful and gain more and more control in our lives. It's, it's as though we've driven down to the, the state penitentiary and just unloaded a, a, we, a truck full of weapons. We've armed the inmates by feeding the law to our, our mental focus and will actually cause the sinful nature to gain more power. Even if it resists the sin we're trying to resist, it will become so proud it will be intolerable. And that will set us up for a fall anyway. Yeah, Paul has said this repeatedly. He talked about the sinful passions aroused by the law. He says in 520 of Romans, the law was added so the trespass or sin might increase. He says in Romans 614, sin won't be your master because you're not under law but under grace. 1 Corinthians 15 says the law gives sin its power. Doesn't get any more succinct than that. The law gives sin its power. Boy, you don't see that in a lot of Christian teachings nowadays. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, also very clear. It calls, it calls the law the ministry of death in 2 Corinthians 3. That's what it does. It brings death. This is what Paul is describing here. He says, so... The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Yeah, sin needs to be recognized as sin, and sin needs to become utterly sinful. Where we just realize how bad I am, how bad this is. And we start crying out for deliverance. We break, we're broken of our own self-effort and our own self-will. And we find that moment of breakthrough. That's what we're gonna see in Romans 7 here, is sin becoming utterly sinful, sin being recognized for what it really is. The breaking of the outer man. And so we see... In this struggle with the law, we see the law defines sin. And it doesn't stop there, it stimulates sin. And then we see there's this inner tension. There's this wrestling. You know, you see Paul starting already, he's like, the, the law, is the law the problem? Did that, no, it's not the law, the law's good. It, what I wanna do is good. And yet, I can't seem to do what I wanna do. And there's this wrestling, this inner tension. And we can spend weeks, months, years in this box right here. 
trying as hard as we can, redoubling our efforts, trying even harder. We get down on our knees, we're like, Lord, I'm really serious this time. I'm gonna stop this thing. I remember having so many of these sessions with God. You know, almost at times, like beating myself up verbally, even physically at times where I'm just trying to force myself to do the right thing and making promises to God. And then I can't believe what I did in a moment of weakness. I can't even believe what I did in a moment of strength. And I just see myself doing things I never thought I would do, things I vowed I would not do. And Paul describes this inner tension under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, we know the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual. It's like I'm sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I'm doing. For what I want to do, I do not do, but I hate what I do. You ever hate what you do? Especially as you see the result in other people's lives, the effect on other people, the distance it produces. You're letting people down. You're harming them. You're not coming through on things you said you would. There's people counting on me and I just did not do what I said I was gonna do. And if I do what I don't wanna do, I'm agreeing that the law is good. It's not, I, I'm saying, yeah, this is bad. But as it is, it's no longer I myself who, who, who does it, but it is sin living in me. Yeah, Paul is personifying sin almost as this third party, this actor inside of his own tent. He's like, it's not even me. It's like sin is doing this. I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is my sinful nature. At least I know it intellectually. We all know that. I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. I, I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it it's sin living in me that does it. He says it again. He's, he's going in circles here. I don't want to do it and I'm doing it and this is sin in me and I'm agreeing with what God says and I know this is wrong and I know I shouldn't have done that and I know I should be doing this but I just can't seem to do it. Or maybe I do it once and then I just totally fail the next day. And so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. Yeah, there's a part of me that loves the law of God and wants to follow it, but I see another law at work in me, some sort of principle at work, waging war against the law of my mind. We have a battle going on here, the flesh and the spirit setting the desires against one another. So you cannot do the thing that you want to do making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. A prisoner. And so we have slavery under law. We have the prison house of sin and addiction and weak-willed and pride that trap every one of us. And finally, Paul cries out, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death?
Some people look at this and they're like, this sounds like a guy that's losing it. I actually feel like this is a guy that's close to a breakthrough. This is hitting rock bottom. And sometimes you gotta hit rock bottom before you can find your way back up again. Some of my moments of greatest failure also ended up becoming my moments of greatest breakthrough when it comes to victory over sin. Because as, as Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 12, when I'm weak, then I am strong. This is God showing us our weakness. You know, some people get to this place and they give up. They're like, I've been trying to follow God and there's, you know, I just feel like there's all these rules and I just can't live up to it and they're resentful at the people around them and they're tired of this, this ministry house and they're just like, I just, it's just not, I'm just not feeling it, man. It's not working. This, this felt right at one point, it just doesn't feel right anymore. I think this is, being under law is probably the main reason people stop following God. This is, the, this is the reason we lose people. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. And who doesn't want those things? But what doesn't describe someone's life under law is love and joy and peace. They're stuck in Romans 7. It's like this nightmare, this labyrinth they can't get out of. And they're trying as hard as they can and they're doubling their effort. And nothing's ever good enough for anybody. And the blame is in all the wrong places. What they don't realize is they're under law and they need to break through the end of Romans 7 and into Romans 8. And that's where they will find the joy and the peace and the fruit of the Holy Spirit that they're longing for. The thing that brought them to God in the first place. But so many people give up. They're just like, whatever. And they walk away and they go back to that life of sin we were studying last time, which only brought other kinds of slavery. Paul says, what benefit were you deriving from those things that you're now ashamed of? You're going to go back to those things you're ashamed of? Other people, they're like, okay, I just need to pretend like I'm good. That's another way off, you know, false path off of this treadmill. That's the Pharisee route. That's the route other Christians take. They show up and they put on a happy face at church and they're like, oh, yes, I almost sinned once this week. I almost had an angry thought while driving. I almost gossiped. <laughs> Sins that Christians share. <laughs> and they pretend like they're very good, but the whole time there's this inner despair. They're failing, they're flailing, they know it. They're getting into all kinds of secret sin that would, you know, make their, their church friend's hair turn white. <laughs> And they're stuck in isolation. Some of you are stuck in isolation, pretending like you're cool, in the flesh, under law, and you've got all kinds of secret sin going on. And it's, I've been there for years. It feels so good to get out of that. I can't encourage you enough to come clean on that and to move out, of, out from under law. Now, there's a third way here. The law ultimately it doesn't just define sin or stimulate sin but it breaks us and drives us to dependence it breaks us and drives us to dependence and that's why Paul says in the very next verse thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord 
Yeah, some people just shout Romans 7.24 over and over again. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me? You've got to go on to verse 25 and on into Romans 8. You've got to say, thank you, God. Jesus is the answer. He is the solution. He is my Savior. Watchman Nee, he says, like someone who awakens suddenly to find himself in a burning building, Paul's cry is now for help. For he's come to the point where he despairs of himself. Have you despaired of yourself, or do you hope that if you read and pray more, you'll be a better Christian? What do you think? Have you given up on your own self-effort yet? Or do you think, I just need more goals? I need a calendar reminder. That's the, that's the key. This wretched man does not merely deplore his wretchedness. He asks the fine question, namely, who shall deliver me? Who? Till now he's looked for something. Now his hope is in a person. Until now he's looked within for a solution to his problem. Now he looks beyond himself for a savior. He no longer puts forth self-effort. All his expectation is now in another. This is a surrender. This is a running up of the white flag. This is a rest. This is a collapse into Jesus's, Jesus's safety. It sets us up for a new level of spiritual growth. Martin Luther, we, we talked about his journey to be the perfect monk and how that broke him. He got some pretty good insights on the law, but he says, you know, the law, he says, God's seeing that this universal plague of the whole world, that is, man's opinion of his own righteousness, his hypocrisy, his confidence in his own holiness, we're all infected with that plague, could not be beaten down by any other means. He willed that it should be slain by the law. Not forever, but that when it is once slain, man might be raised up again above and beyond the law. God must therefore have a strong hammer to break the rocks, a hot burning fire in the midst of heaven to overthrow the mountains. That is, to destroy this furious and obstinate beast. That when a man by this breaking is brought to nothing, he should despair of his own strength and thus terrified should thirst after mercy. Yes, hunger is the best cook. And this is what God is bringing us to a place of hunger. Chuck Smith, why grace changes everything, says, you know, one of the greatest barriers to growth in the Christian life is the notion that we can live a life that pleases God by our own efforts. If we think we can do this, we'll try to take credit for it. See, putting away that bad habit wasn't so hard, I knew I could do it. At that point, we're not giving God glory, but we're writing a success story with ourselves as the star. We begin telling others how our formula will work for them as well, and God becomes further and further removed from the picture. <laughs> Predictably, despite our great self-confidence, the first wind of tragedy or disappointment causes our whole house of cards to come crashing down around our ears. God will allow us to follow these self-help, self-improvement programs until we've tried them all. He will allow us to play out our own efforts until we finally come to the honest confession, I can't do it. I can't be righteous in my own strength, O wretched man that I am. 
Such honesty is extremely difficult for us because it forces us to admit our inability, failure, our weakness. It's only when we admit our utter powerless, however, that we find hope. That's what God offers, hope. Hope in your weakness. When we finally turn to the grace of God, the Lord intervenes and begins to do a work that we could not do for ourselves. It's not until we find ourselves driven by desperation to a cry of helplessness and hopelessness that we begin to enjoy real victory in Christ. And the eventual outcome under law, external conformity, but increasing internal defeat and resentment and cynicism, you know you're a fake, you know you're failing, you know this is bad, you know something's gotta change. There's a growing despair or a self-righteousness, which always has despair underneath of it. Worn out. That's really how you feel. You feel worn out in the Christian life. You feel like when Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. You feel like that is, do you scoff at that promise? It's because you're under law. Are you not enjoying the Christian life? It's because you're under law. Watchman Nee tells the story of, um, he was at this summer camp and they were swimming out in this lake and all of a sudden one of the guys starts to scream and flail and he starts to go under. And he's like, he was not a very good swimmer. But all eyes turned to the one guy who they knew was a trained lifeguard standing there on the shore. And they watched him, expecting him immediately to dive in the water to, to save this guy. But the guy just stood there. And Nee just thinks, you really care about your own comfort so much that you're not going to jump in and save this guy? He says, in my heart, I hated that man. Well, finally, the, the, the lifeguard just waits and waits and waits, and then he finally jumps in the water. In a few strokes, he's there. He grabs the man. He pulls him to shore. And after, afterward, he says, I went up and I confronted that guy. I said, how dare you be so selfish like that to not save this man? And, and the lifeguard said, you can't just jump in and save a drowning man. He's got too much strength left. He would have pulled me under with him. No. You have to wait until he's reached the end of his strength. That's only then is he in a position that he can be saved. And he says a drowning man cannot be saved until he's utterly exhausted and ceases to make the slightest effort to save himself. And that's the situation that we're in. We need to come to the end of our strength. We need to struggle against the law to realize. And we don't, we don't need to prolong this, okay? But there's no getting around law school. But God is trying to teach you. He's trying to break you. His hand is upon you because he loves you. Because he's trying to lead you out into victory, the victorious Christian life. He wants to see gradual, deep transformation where you become a person with a spiritual mindset. He wants to see you a more loving, Christ-like person, a person who's walking by the Spirit, who's bearing the fruits of the Spirit, and this is where we'll end this week, at the end of Romans 7. Yes, Lord, thanks that you came to set us free, and you say if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. I pray you'd set us free from this prison, this slavery here, what Paul describes, the slavery to sin. I pray that, 
I pray for anybody here who's not a Christian that they would experience your, your salvation, God, and that they would be able to start on this journey toward spiritual growth and toward becoming like Christ. But I pray for those of us here who are stuck. I pray that tonight would be a breakthrough night for us, Lord. I pray that Romans 7, that the truth expressed here, that you would use that, Lord, to unlock the, the shackles of sin. And um, I pray for the freedom. I pray for the brokenness, God, that stops looking deeper to self-effort and looks beyond self and our weakness to the strength of Christ. Yeah. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.